Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I wanna do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Oh, hey, it's your uncle's army buddy who makes superb banana bread. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. Um, first off, I know you. You're either like, the fuck is a hagfish? Or you're like, ah, yes, hagfish. But an hour of hagfish? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's a secret you need to know. We are all hagfish. We're shy sometimes, but we have friends. We have preferences. We can make do. We have hidden talents. Sometimes, People underestimate us until they realize our superpowers, and then they stand back and they marvel. And by marvel, I mean listen to a whole episode about hagfish. But before we dive into the deep sea of this slimy hour, let's first, by tradition, thank all the folks on patreon.com slash ologies who make these episodes possible. We'll hear some of their hagfish queries later. And to all the folks buying ologies merch at the link in the show notes and sporting it. And of course, to all of you kind souls who have rated and subscribed to the pod and also left your reviews for old dad word, which I read by lantern light with a tear in my eye, such as this week, Jen Bagels, just wrote, Allie, I hope you really do read every review because I want you to know that the world is a better place because you're in it. I don't deserve that. That's too nice. Don't make me cry. KSUP HD, which I guess I'm realizing just now is KSU PhD. So sorry, says, here's a tip. Don't cherry pick the episodes you think you'll be interested in. Just binge them all. They're all delightful. Thanks, KSUP HD. Okay, hagfish. Hagfish. Okay, first off, you're going to have to wait to hear how Hagfish got its name. Sorry, it was a common Patreon question. We're going to address it later. This is as clickbaity as I get. Secondly, yes, the term Hagfishology has been used before. I did not make it up. A 2013 biology graduate student seminar schedule included the talk, quote, adventures in Hagfishology, sulfate transport, and extra Brinchial Mechanisms of Ion Regulation in Pacific Hagfish by Alex Clifford. So, Hagfishology. The title's legit, haters. So this episode exists because science journalist Ed Yong wrote an article for The Atlantic in January with the headline, 
no one is prepared for hagfish slime. And he was so right. It included photos from a 2017 traffic accident in Oregon in which 7,500 pounds of hagfish tipped over on a windy, foresty highway and slicked the roads and the cars in incomprehensible amounts of slime. I immediately started Googling hagfish scientists. I had a few on the list, and I was thrilled to see that they were based in Southern California. They were on my spreadsheet. A few weeks ago, my friend, wildlife educator Mallory Lindsay, who was amazing, went to the same lab, and I messaged her, and I was like, I've been wanting to do an episode on this. How are they? The next day, my phone rang. It was a hagfishologist, just using the phone like it was 1997. It's so charming. So we met a few days later on a street corner near Chapman campus in Orange County. And he has a bright smile, kind of surfer-esque golden hair and a ruddy beard. And we drove around looking for parking because, again, this is Southern California. And then we hit the lab and he showed me gurgling, chilly saltwater tanks filled with a few dozen soft pinkish, purplish, gray, floppy hot dogs with mouths. And then he let me cradle one in my open palm, and it felt like a very floppy hot dog, like if God put a face on an intestine and just stopped there. Were these specimens slimy? Not really, until this ologist urged me to annoy one. Give it a little pinch, he coaxed. Milliseconds later, it seemed, my hand was drenched in a thick veil of elephant snot. I was transfixed. So hagfish are disgusting, and they deserve our respect. So this ologist, as you will hear from the dulcet tones of his Canadian accent, hails from the north, and he got his bachelor's and master's studying zoology at the University of Guelph. Whilst there, he happened to take an invertebrate zoology class with hagfish master Dr. Douglas Fudge, with whom he now works as a research associate at Chapman. So prepare to hear about swift escapes outlasting extinction events, the mysteries of the deep, why you, I guess, don't always need a spine, eating your way out of a dead thing, disappearing without a trace, and like a slippery messiah, converting water into slime with human delight and professional hagfishologist, Tim Weingart. I don't know if you know this, but you are technically a hagfishologist. I don't know if I've ever heard it put that way, (laughs) but uh, I probably won a few. Yeah. (laughs) I looked it up to see if there was a, like a more Latin sounding name. Yeah. And the term that's been used the most to describe what you study is literally hagfishologist. Like there are people have used that word before. So it's a thing. Hagfishologist. We'll run with it. What? is a hagfish for someone who's never seen or touched one. Ooh, so um, I guess the best way to describe them is they're uh, a benthic deep sea dweller, Mm -hmm. right? So essentially all hagfish share 
that in common. They all live along the bottom substrate of the oceans and the majority of them below 100 meters in depth or about 300 feet, right? So side note, this all just jumps between metric and US, why are we still not metric measurements? So I don't have to convert it, thank freaking God. So what they are is a jawless, primitive, eel-like creature, right? I'm hesitant to call them a fish, even though it's in their name, Mm -hmm. because they aren't necessarily a traditional fish, right? They they lack scales, they lack jaws, they lack eyes, they lack what we would traditionally refer to as fins. Mm -hmm. So they're in many ways a very primitive version of uh, of a modern day fish, right? They're thought to have diverged at around the same time that vertebrates popped up on the uh, evolutionary spectrum. So these suckers are old. Old. My God, you're so old. Yeah. How many millions of years do you think? So there's fossil evidence up to 350 million years, but they're likely over 500 million years old. Wow. Yeah, so uh, among some of the first like really highly organized cephalized which means essentially like head focused creatures so Mm -hmm. hagfish for a long time were defined as craniates which means that they have a cranium surrounding their brain but they have no calcification of anything in their body so it's all cartilage right Mm -hmm. so they do have a notochord they have many of these features that are very vertebrate in a way but lacking calcification lacking gills lacking jaws all these other features place them in a in a much more and i even hesitate to say primitive but i guess they are primitive features even though hagfish themselves are obviously as ancient as they are they're also very modern right Mm -hmm. like the hagfish we see today we really don't know how much they relate to the hagfish of the past right p.s if you're like notochord I got you. So a notochord is, by definition, a cartilaginous skeletal rod supporting the body. You had one. You had one as a teeny tiny embryo. So it's like a backbone in that it gives support and structure, but it's not a backbone in that it's not bony segmented vertebrae. Oh, and the hagfish has a brain case that isn't a skull. It's like a cartilage rib cage around their brain lump. And in the hagfish world, there has been decades of heated, dramatic, that's how I like to imagine it, debate on whether hagfish never developed a backbone or if they had one and then just devolved the other way, gradually get rid of the sucker. Oh, and their eyes and the skull. So kind of like a handsome, lanky drifter who's also slimy and eats corpses, their backstory is still a mystery through fossil evidence of which there's only two, uh, it makes it a bit of a limited jump in terms of what you can say. There's two fossils of hagfish. Yeah, soft-bodied creatures don't fossilize well, right? Mm -hmm. So when they do die and end up in the bottom sediment, their tissues are so similar to everything else around them that they don't end up distinct uh, like other animals with calcium or, or real bones in their body do. Who's got those two fossils? Where are they? That's a good question. One of them was just discovered and published by a group in Alberta. 
Uh, and then the other one, that's a good question. It's been quite a while since I, I read the paper, but they would be there. They'd be in museums, mm-hmm. right? There's only two of them known. So Y'all, I spent so long trying to find out where these two fossils are. And I can tell you that one was discovered in Mason Creek, Illinois, I think around 1991. And the other is from Lebanon and was acquired in 2013 by a private fossil collecting company. But I earnestly just spent probably two hours trying to figure out if I could just go on a road trip and see a hagfish fossil in person. And the lack of information on their whereabouts has led me to believe that they're both kept in a subterranean vault with the Holy Grail. Or they're just like kicking it like ballers in a timeshare with Bigfoot. So precious. Yeah, super <laughs> precious. And, and like I was saying, very rare, right? But uh, as we uncover more fossil beds, there are particular fossilization conditions that lend themselves to preserving soft-bodied animals better. Mm-hmm. I think there was just a big deposit found in China, actually, in the last couple of weeks that has a lot of soft-bodied creatures. Um, but I think it's more in the, yeah, it could be right in that 350 million, 450 million year range. And going back a little bit less far than that, your history, when you were just a tiny tot in <laughs> Canada, did you always love poking around lakes and forests? What was going on? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um my mom always used to say that if she needed to distract me, she just said, she just say she saw something in that puddle and, <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be uh, pretty consumed for quite a while. Something's in the water. Something's in the water. Honestly, I don't think there's a time when I didn't like science in some way, right? Like mm-hmm. I wanted microscopes when I was six and, <laughs> uh, you know, brought home every creepy crawly I could find. Um, <laughs> And, you know, actually, I collected butterflies. My original plan as a child was to be an entomologist. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So I collected, you know, large numbers of butterflies from all over the world, wherever we went. And then where did you flutter away from them and into a hagfish tank? Uh, I think that would have been, yeah, in university when, you know, I, I guess the opportunities to study tropical butterflies were limited in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> it's butterfly time. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of what happened. I think it was right around 2007. Yeah, through meeting Doug and getting introduced to hagfish and then uh, sort of bring, being brought into the fold as it was into the into the world of hagfish. Uh, there's sort of no end of amazement. That's what's kept me here, that almost any question you can ask about hagfish, there likely isn't a concrete answer. And so when Doug said, hey, come on back, study some hagfish with me, what was your response to that? Oh, I, I think I, it took a bit of prodding, I think, because I really did enjoy uh, the wildlife research station and living out in the woods there. But, uh, you know, obviously we're sitting here in beautiful, sunny Southern California, mm-hmm. which didn't hurt. Have you ever heard a more Canadian sentence? I really did enjoy uh, the wildlife research station and living out in the woods there. And Tim says he loves doing applied research on these critters, figuring out how to use a slime to inform human-made alternatives. And his master's work was looking at how we can use these 15-centimeter-long threads that spring forth from the hagfish as a fiber source and get away from petrochemical-based fibers like acrylic and nylon and polyester. So, although he misses the wilderness, trading his parka for board shorts wasn't all that tough. So, I I think that 
my my heart's always been into hagfish so in some ways it maybe didn't take too much but uh <laughs> yeah i think that the right projects the right people all sort of lend themselves to to a good time in science <laughs> and so explain to me what the life of a hagfish is like where are they living what are they eating who are they hanging out with what's going on down there oh i think we all wish we knew um <laughs> so what we do know is that uh, they're very sensitive to temperature and light, right? So they're a deep sea specialist. Uh, they seek out cold water. There is maybe only one species that's found inside of 100 meters of depth. So there is called the inshore hagfish, which is found in Japan. Uh, but other than that, they're all very deep sea. Uh, they feed on a variety of not only small tube worms and other invertebrates, but also scavenge large windfalls of whales and seals and sea lions and big fish that fall down into the ocean deep. That's deep. So side note, remember the Toothology episode with Sarah McNulty about marine snow, that soft steady underwater dusting of poo and flesh chunks while a dead whale is like a marine blizzard and hagfish love a snow day we know or at least we think that they play an important role in that bottom composition turnover mm -hmm. right so when things do fall into the deep there's low oxygen uh, there are conditions that can lend themselves to preserving something like a whale for years wow. right low temperatures low oxygen uh, so maybe the bacterial decomposition is not as prevalent, like there would be bacterial decomposition, but I think there's a place for hagfish in actually cleaning up the bottom in that way and then spreading the nutrients around, right? So as they feed, they'll obviously leave, go back to their burrows or go back to where they're living and bring nutrients with them and essentially help spread nutrients in an otherwise very, very desert-like deep sea environment. Smell it, find it, munch it, poop it, spread it. We were looking in the tank and some of them are all coiled up. Some of them are just hanging out in a tube. What's their day-to-day -day life like? In terms of what we know about where they live, mm -hmm. some have a tendency to be in more muddy, sandy bottoms. Those ones, those species are typical burrowers. They'll actually live in burrows in the mud mm -hmm. uh, and typically sit there with just their nostril sticking out catching, you know, looking for whiffs of whale or, or seals. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the other ones do spend time on rocky bottoms. And I think those are the species that tend to coil up a bit more because they're just spending a lot more time on the surface as opposed to within the substrate. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, there's been interesting work as well showing that there's handedness, that hagfish have handedness. They have a tendency to coil either right or left more than the other way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so they have a preference. I, I think in captivity, there's probably only maybe five or six common species for people to have in captivity. There are a number of species that do not do well at all. So they're really hard to, to keep uh, in artificial environments, essentially. Mm -hmm. I think partially because it's really hard to replicate the pressure that they're used to living in. We can replicate temperature and salinity and pH and all these other environmental parameters, but it's really hard to recreate being, you know, a mile below the surface of right. the ocean. Yeah. And how are they making baby hagfish? 
Nobody knows. What? Yeah, so nobody has ever witnessed hagfish breeding. Wow. Uh, and nobody has ever had uh, hagfish successfully breed in captivity, even unseen, to produce fertile eggs. So we have hagfish laying eggs in captivity all the time, but they're presumably unfertilized uh, because they never develop. Wow. Right. So this is something that I'm really interested in as well is that is there seasonality in the deep sea, even though it's dark and cold all year? Are they more attuned to those deep sea conditions and maybe sense the difference in lunar phases? Do they have a migration? Are they always in the same place all the time? And I think that they are moving throughout the season, but it's just not a lot is known about it because it's so hard to follow these things into the deep. Right. Um, a lot of the technology that's used for tracking fish and other stuff isn't at either the size scale that could be used in hagfish or is just it, it, the fish need to come to the surface to get data pings and hagfish never will. Right. Right. So the, yeah, they're really tough to follow. And uh, we've got a new underwater video rig that we're going to use to try and at least peer into their lives a little bit. Would you think that they would be following the whales in case a whale does bite the dust and falls down? I think whales are typically undergoing such large migrations that hagfish wouldn't be, like, say, following the herd type thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think their low metabolism, it, you know, it suits them well to possibly go a year or more without feeding. Uh, even in captivity, we typically only feed them every three to six months. What? What? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they eat a lot when they eat, but they don't eat frequently. Wow, what do you feed them in captivity? Um, they get a bit of a mixture. There's shrimp and mm -hmm. squid uh, and beef and sometimes other random large fish that we come across uh, mm -hmm. in our work. <laughs> I think we fed them an opa, <laughs> which is a very interesting, uh, interesting fish. Okay, so quick aside, researching opa, O-P-A-H, got a lot of hits on Oprah. It's a different thing. An opa is a big, silvery, round fish. It's also called a moonfish. Looks like a moon. And an opa are one of the rare endothermic fishes, which means, like Oprah, it has a warm heart. We feed them a diversity of stuff, hopefully trying to get them the right uh, nutritional requirements they need. But again, it's something that is not really well understood and something that we're looking to do more on is, is gathering gut contents uh, from hagfish. Yeah. Would you wild. just drop like a pot roast in the tank and they go nuts on it? Essentially. What? Yeah. What does that look like? Uh, like it's a bit of a feeding frenzy. <laughs> yeah, that they're all going at it. It's really interesting as well, though, because they lack appendages and they don't have a jaw. The way if it is actually like, say, a big pot roast, they actually tie themselves into knots that they slide against the pot roast to actually tug on it. Oh, my God. Yeah, so they tie the same knots to rid themselves of slime, mm -hmm. but they have a very unique way of actually latching on to something without jaws, right? So they can pull at it exactly. and get like a, some resistance. Have you ever seen a hagfish eating at a whale? Uh, only in film. I've never seen it in real life. I would love to. Do they go into the whale and then burrow out? 
Yeah, they, they are definitely spending a lot of time inside the whale. Uh, a, a recent study was published actually showing that they can absorb amino acids across their skin. Wow. Right. So they, you know, part of their low metabolism, their ability to deal with low oxygen, all of these unique adaptations uh, really allow them to live that lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle choice, Bella and to go into a whale in which oxygen concentrations could be quite low, uh, bacterial levels high, all this other stuff, they're, they're perfectly at home, may, may feed there for months on end. For months, just gorging. Yeah. And then be like, bye-bye, and then go hang out mm-hmm. for a year. Yeah. Wow, that's so efficient, mm-hmm. I have to say. That's good, good for them that it's like, take on a lot of cargo and then just kick it for a bit. And I think we see that with anything that's withstood the test of hundreds of millions of years, right? Mm-hmm. That they're typically generalists, right? They're, you know, uh, something like a crocodile, right? Can eat anything, can go months and months without eating. Like they just, there's certain life history characteristics that lend themselves to withstanding mass extinctions and mm. all of the climatic changes that impact very niche specific species. Right. Yeah. So after this interview, Tim and I went and we ate tacos. And I realized later that despite flinging around wet loaves of hagfish mucus in the lab earlier, Neither one of us washed our hands, but we also had a spirited discussion about the importance of a diverse microbiome. So I think we're on the same, like, so what page there. Also, at lunch, he mentioned that the hagfish traps are like buckets with a few conical ports that funnel the hagfish in so they can't get out. But what do they use to lure them into the bucket? Turns out hagfish love the smell of big mammal bones and fat. So they toss a fleshy beef bone in there. And I was like, do they get to eat it? And he's like, nah, that would mess up their gut content data. So the beef bones are in a mesh bag, meaning that the hagfish smell it, find it, but can't munch it, poop it, or spread it. The hagfish have been catfished. And they tend to eat the bigger things, like if a whale, a sea lion... Is that kind of what their bread and butter is? Is, oh man, there's a big whale. It's big and dead floating down here. It's Thanksgiving. What's happening? Yeah, I, I think that's the that's the, the real train of thought that we're on is essentially that a lot of their features, a lot of their adaptations would lend themselves to really capitalizing on those big whale falls or, or, or big mammal falls. Um, they have very low metabolisms. If you compared them to a vertebrate, they'd have one of the lowest metabolisms of any vertebrate. Really? Right? So yeah, they, they live slow. So there's that, right? There's, uh, you know, we've observed them absolutely gorging at these deep sea sites, right? So they just, you know, they fill their guts to the point that they're maybe many times their original mass. Wow. I was hungry. So to be able to do that as well makes you think that this is, that's the, predominantly what they're doing Mm -hmm. but we also see that they do feed on some sort of tube worms and these other invertebrates that are found in the sediment uh in which the hagfish live so 
And can you run me through some body parts of a hagfish? Yeah, so I guess if you're to have a hagfish out on the table, <laughs> they have they do have a head, right? Mm -hmm. So they have barbels at the end of the head, which are essentially their chemical sensing um devices mm -hmm. right they Is that have like a catfish yeah catfish, catfish have, have barbels as okay. well right so yeah they'd be packed with what we call chemosensory cells that would be picking up things like the the sense of dead or decaying fish right or a whale mm -hmm. so they start with those they have a very large intake aperture for their gill system so seawater gets snorkeled through their face snoot and then that water is expelled through these breathing holes on the side so they're kind of like a slimy water flute that someone sewed from a deboned baby anyway they smell like champs it also feeds into a sack right very close to their brain so they have probably an incredible ability to detect very faint or very faint smells which makes sense right if they're potentially hundreds of meters from something that fell or maybe even further right so they have very primitive eyes if you look at a lot of the hagfish uh, they don't have the type of eyes that we would normally associate with the fish theirs uh, actually don't even protrude through the skin so there's a transparent layer of skin that covers a very rudimentary eye uh, that was likely more developed at one time but was just not selected for and uh, they essentially lost its full functionality so eyes we're off that had them lost them baller now what is happening with that mouth first of all it has these whiskery flesh dangles that look kind of like a tiny handlebar mustache made out of little dicks. But don't go looking for jaws here. No, no, sir. They have what Tim calls a muscular appendage inside their mouth, and it juts out this little paddle of hard, jagged spikes, kind of like a snail's tongue. So imagine if your tongue had rows and rows of those things in parking lots that'll pop your tires if you drive the wrong way on them. So, yeah, hagfish. They deserve our respect. So essentially, uh, there are these keratinous teeth or the same, you know, the same material that makes up our fingernails, makes up their, their, their rasp, which they use to actually um, essentially sand uh, tissue off of a carcass or to slurp up uh, a little worm that they're <laughs> after. But then when you look at the rest of them, they, they vary a little bit in terms of their gill apertures that water flows out of. The more burrowing specialist hagfish will have reduced numbers of gill openings in which the water flows out of. Again, water flute. Now, all of this is just the tater skins, the jalapeno poppers appetizers before we get to the main course, because here, here's where things get slimy. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes of Ologies or the first 12 seconds of this one, you know I don't censor language. The fuck is a hagfish? Most science podcasts bleep out questionable swear words, but I embrace raw emotion and freedom of adult expression in science communication, in this podcast at least, with the exception of the word mucus. It's too gross. It comes up between 10 to 15 times in the remainder of this episode. So when you hear a faint chime, please know it's just replacing the word mucus. Please feel free, take a glug of your beverage in front of you, do a tiny imperceptible butt dance to celebrate the absence of this word. 
And then as you move into the rest of the body, you'll notice along the ventral side that they have about 100 to 150 slime gland openings, right? So they're literally covered head to tail with these glands that produce their defensive slime. So whether they're bit on the head or on the tail, they can in a fraction of a second, like less than 100 milliseconds, produce copious quantities of this fiber reinforced slime. Mm -hmm. Which is astounding it's astounding like for something that is maybe not as advanced as some other vertebrates this is a defense system that is still very much mysterious in terms of how it how it works right I think, yeah, so if everything else about the hagfish we would call primitive, this is highly derived, right? Mm -hmm. This is unlike anything else found in nature. Uh, we know of a lot of mucuses. We know of a lot of natural fiber sources like silkworm silks or spider silks. But hagfish threads that are found in their slime are not only comparative to spider silks in terms of their mechanical properties, that they're incredibly tough, but they produce this stuff in prodigious quantities. This cannot be overstated. Like uh, an individual hagfish may have 20,000 kilometers of fiber in it in its body at any one time. And what's so unique about these fibers is that they're packaged into 15 centimeter fiber lengths, but that's coiled into a 150 micron cell. So like, a, you know, a little bit more than a 10th of a millimeter, they pack 15 centimeters of thread into. So to put that in perspective, the threads that make up this water trapping slime network are 10 million times longer than they are wide. And they are somehow neatly coiled like a skein of yarn into a tiny cell capsule ready to be ejected and unfurled. Now, more on how that works in a minute. But admit it, you love hagfish. How are they coiling this? What is their gooey witchcraft? You're intrigued. So that process in and of itself has been something that has really intrigued us for quite some time. And is it hard for them to make more of it if they slime someone and they're like, bye bye, later? Do they have to go sit and, and produce more? Is that is that um, energy expensive for them? Uh, yeah, the fibers are made up of protein, which in general is quite expensive to make, mm -hmm. um, but. One of the unique things that the hagfish does by having so many slime glands is that it never deploys them all at once, right? So they do have some site specificity, right? Mm -hmm. If you bite it on the tail, it may only release exudate is what we call the condensed slime, essentially. It may only release a few glands worth, like two or three glands on either side of its body, which is enough to produce a gallon of form slime. Oh my God. So like they would never be caught without slime ever, right? Mm -hmm. They just have so much on board and there's some indication as well that they can't actually release all of the slime from a single gland because they likely retain the immature cell components, uh, which would otherwise maybe be released, but not function as they should. Yeah. What happens when these fibers hit water? 
Yeah, so that's something that's really interesting to us. Uh, so it's a two-component slime. It's mm -hmm. released by what's called holocrine secretion, which means that the cells are actually having their membranes stripped off of them as they pass through the pore of the slime gland. Wow. Right? So it narrows down to a tiny opening that strips the cells of their membranes. So when they're released to seawater, they're exposed to an entirely new environment right water there's an interaction with the seawater there's um essentially the solubilization of proteins that help maintain these fibers in their coiled up state mm -hmm. um but what happens is that the seawater very rapidly bursts the vesicles that are released they shear out into these long strands which essentially transmit forces of mixing down to the thread bundles so instant replay the hagfish takes the offense defense ejects tiny coiled balls of the exit getting their little membrane covers stripped as they exit the threads hit the water and expand trapping more water in a net of microfiber threads expanding 10,000 times its size slime predator off Offense retreats down for the count. Hagfish remains the champion of the deep. Or in Tim's words. To simplify what I just said, I guess, um, the is released really vigorous mixing that's created by either the hagfish trying to escape or the predator trying to eat the hagfish further expands this network of and fiber until it forms this fully formed slime ball, which is capable of uh, like fully clogging the gills of a 10 foot shark, right? We've never seen a successful predation on a hagfish by any gill breathing predator. So we see sea lions, birds, porpoises, all successful hagfish predators mm -hmm. because their breathing mechanisms are separated from their eating mechanism, mm -hmm. essentially, just like us, right? Like we can breathe and eat at the same time, yeah. whereas most gill breathing fish can't. They're breathing all the time, and that is what exposes them to the slime. So you got gills, you got screwed. And so that slime will just clog their actual respiration. Exactly. And they're like, I'm out. It shuts the water flow from going across their gills, and we actually don't know what happens to them. Because all of the video work that's been done has happened with wild, free-living animals. Mm -hmm. When the sharks or the fish get slimed, they quickly leave the video frame. Yeah. And we actually don't know whether they actually die or whether any of these animals can get the slime off their gills. It just gets wrapped around everything with the thousands of, you know, with miles and miles of fiber. It's mm -hmm. very easy for it to just get wrapped around things and stay there. <laughs> oh, man. And so how much of this slime is actually water and how much is the fiber protein so when the exudate's released into seawater and fully sets up it's over 99 percent seawater so essentially hagfish slime can be formed in any container it'll conform to the shape of almost anything uh, we did a study that showed that it's actually one of the softest materials known to man it's very deformable so side note, this study was Concentration Independent Mechanics and Structure of Hagfish Slime. And one of the paper's authors, Randy Ilwalt, told The Atlantic's Ed Young that hagfish slime is one of the softest materials ever measured and, quote, jello is between 10,000 and 100,000 times stiffer than hagfish slime. I have touched it. 
and it is some soft, silky business. And then I went and touched nachos because I'm 10,000 times tougher than Purell, apparently. But when it's put into elongational flow or stretched, that's when the fibers and their reinforcement properties start to be felt because they're actually incredibly strong when you stretch them. What do you think are some applications of hagfish slime. Are people looking at this being like, I think so. Um, It's such a unique mechanism. I think, first of all, the speed with which the slime sets up Mm -hmm. interests people because whatever is happening, and we've been trying to figure this out for years, happens so quickly that it's likely one of the fastest reactions that we know of, mm-hmm. right? This is, it's so incredibly fast that I think how we could learn how to not only maybe bundle things, but unbundle or uncoil things, and also how we develop rapidly expanding gel networks would be a, a, an interesting application, right? Mm-hmm. The fibers themselves, I've always been interested in actually using for textile, yeah. right? Um, they're very, very fine. They're a micron in diameter. So even when you think of microfiber clothing, which is so soft, that stuff's like 30 to 50 microns mm-hmm. in diameter. So it's much finer. So let's get some scale for microns real quick. A micron is one millionth of a meter, and a human hair is around 50 to 100 microns in diameter. A red blood cell is five microns across. The human eye can't see much smaller than around 40 microns. So yes, hagfish silk would be luxurious as hell. It would probably make the softest (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. What would you have to do to get it from like a puddle of to like a loom would you have to dry it out i think that you'd probably want to isolate the thread bundles and then Mm -hmm. work with them on their own but i think the biggest challenge right now is, is that it is such a narrow fiber that any of the equipment that's used right now to spin textiles is not built at a scale that could handle it yeah and now there's a picture that went around the internet that made everyone question what the deal was with hagfish. This photo of a car that got into an accident and it was carrying a ton of hagfish and there was slime everywhere. Yeah, it is all around us. Can you give me any any backstory or any any thoughts on that? Well, I, I, there is a commercial hagfish fishery. Mm-hmm. So hagfish uh, are used as food products in places like Korea. Mm-hmm. They're eaten. Uh, but also for a, quite a few years, their, their skin was used to make eel skin leather products. Oh. So if anybody has something that's called eel skin leather, it's actually probably hagfish. Um, so they made belts and wallets and handbags and still do to this day. Um, So it's likely that that transport had a bunch of hagfish that were going to market. Mm -hmm. And when it got into the accident, it stressed the hagfish out and they started producing slime. So this happened on the coast of Oregon near Depot Bay and the photos are bananas. It looks like these giant earthworms covered in silvery ectoplasm on a two-lane highway covering the whole thing. They're slithering toward the gutter. A four-car pileup looks like a giant sneezed on it. There are bulldozers scooping up slime eels, as they're called, by the hundreds. They're hosing off the road with apparently five 
thousand gallons of water and then just letting them die there on the shoulder. And hagfish, quite frankly, deserve more respect. The local CBS affiliate was on the scene. I had no choice but to get out and I was walking in it and <laughs> it was ugly. And Aaron Butler had a near miss with all that fish. On the ground, it was still moving. I mean, it was there was liquid eels. Yeah. Hagfish. Yeah. Can you imagine if we did that when we were just stressed out? Like, I'm having a day, guys. Oh, yeah. I'm just covered <laughs> in <laughs> Just. Is there a difference between and slime? Well... I think that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure how much slime is maybe a technical term. Okay. Right? I, I think that maybe all slimes have... Okay. You know, but maybe not all... They're slimes. It's very possible. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah, like with hagfish slime, maybe we call it a slime because it's a two-part system. Uh -huh. Whereas something like a snail that leaves trail it's it's really just okay um maybe that's what it is but i guess you call it snail slime too yeah, yeah. i'm gonna look that it i'm gonna look figure into that, that out yeah I'm not sure <laughs> okay i looked into this distinction and the m word is made by membranes and slime is derived from the root word for sticky mud or marsh but it now also means ding you know what i mean so different roots but technically now interchangeable terms so just in case you need that information in your everyday life. Your day-to-day -day work with hagfish, what does it involve? What are you looking at? What's the process? Well, my work right now is looking at whether or not hagfish slime can be used um, to essentially block the flow uh, of water around different objects, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, a boat propeller or a grate system or how we can use its natural tendency to clog and, and reduce water flow uh, in ways that we can essentially harness it as a useful thing for people. One idea might be that maybe you could mix it into an oil slick and bind the water and the oil into it and then remove it that way, mm -hmm. right? Like that's not something we're currently working on, but I always had that interest in that it mops up water so well that I'd be interested to see what it could do, um, you know, with potential contamination in waterways mm -hmm. and, and other things, yeah. How do you think hagfish are uh, portrayed in the media? I think people love to hate them. <laughs> I th yeah, which is sort of sad to me as well. Um, I think that like anything in the ocean, it's not on our radar a lot, right? So once we move off of land into the sea, it, it's quite literally another world. Yeah. And when you move from the shallow seas into the deep sea, it's like outer space, mm -hmm. right? Um, <laughs> so I think that you know, as humans, we tend to look at things that have features that are similar to ours, right? If they have big eyes, they're cute, you know, we, we look for those features. And I think hagfish pretty much lack everything that we can associate with. <laughs> so that, that probably lends it to like, you know, seeming like an ugly worm-like eel-like creature. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I'd say that the more you work with them, the cuter they become and, you know, your respect level definitely goes up. 
Do you have favorite hagfish in the tank? Are you like, what's up, buddy? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. like they do have <laughs> they do have different skin features, just like we do, that you can mm-hmm. use to identify individuals. And I also think that they have personality, right? That some are naturally more relaxed than others. And depending on what you're wanting to do with them, you know, a relaxed hagfish can be a good hagfish. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if uh, the other hagfish are like, why does he always get picked? Yeah. And he's like, I don't know, man. I'm just cool to... Yeah. Cool to kick it with. <laughs> Just an update. My new life motto is... A relaxed hagfish can be a good hagfish. Also, Tim says hagfish do have a reason to be uptight. Scientists aren't sure what effect overfishing or rising ocean temperatures will have on their populations. Plastic is, of course, another issue. Tim says we all know it's on the surfaces of the ocean, but he wonders where it's ending up in the deep sea as well and what organisms are ingesting it and what that'll mean for the future of the hagfish. And he's about to embark on an expedition to the Galapagos. He's great at trapping and is tinkering with new observation cameras to deploy. Folks on his research team refer to him as the hagfish wrangler. How deep are you able to do research? Um, I think a lot of the limitations are because you have, like say if we're dropping traps, you Mm -hmm. typically will have a rope that has to go the whole depth, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're in 4,000 feet, you need such a huge amount of rope to get down there that Mm -hmm. it limits, say, how many traps you can have down at once. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're experimenting with some lineless trapping methods that actually use corrosible links that are made of magnesium that corrode in seawater at a known rate so that you can drop traps and and our camera equipment into say you know like six thousand feet of water uh and have them float back to the surface once the link corrodes yeah so there are some really unique deep sea technologies that are making this stuff possible now that Mm -hmm. maybe wasn't you know 10 20 years ago yeah this is all start it's just ramping up yeah (laughs) such an exciting field of research i feel like so many eyes are on hagfish to be like what is happening with hagfish? Where is the yeah. slime coming from? How have they lived for so long? So quick check-in. I searched hagfish myths, and I did see that Google auto-filled with the most frequent questions asked, which included, are hagfish poisonous? What? No. Can a hagfish bite a human? No, they don't even have a jaw. However, if you wound up on the ocean floor, not alive, it might smell you, find you, munch you, poop you, spread you. But at that point you would have way bigger problems than the hagfish. Now, I kept searching for more flimflam, and I found that in Korea, hagfish is an aphrodisiac and a fertility food. Its shape might have something to do with that. I also came upon a Smithsonian article that said, according to common hagfish mythology, they can fill a five-gallon bucket with the stuff in mere minutes. And that is a myth. Because people, it takes seconds and it could fill a barrel. Is there any flimflam about hagfish that you would want to debunk? Any myths that you feel like need to... Oh, hagfish myths. You should throw one my way. What, what, what have you heard? What are they up to? Oh, I, I, haven't heard, I haven't heard a lot of faulty gossip about a hagfish. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe that they're... I mean, they're opportunists, but that's the beauty of them. Yeah. But um, do you think anyone... Do you think people are grossed out by them because of the 
factor or oh i think so okay yeah i would say that really grosses people out but <laughs> the, the reality is like the and the slime itself it, it's not sticky it's yeah. not toxic it's mm -hmm. you know like it's actually really fun to play with it is um i would say that you know and i would i would challenge anyone to meet a hagfish and to see their slime <laughs> and, and not be as intrigued as i am right it's you you literally are sometimes left speechless and in and in wonder yes right? Have you ever seen any hagfish in a movie or a TV show? I think there have been some hagfish cartoons. There was mm -hmm. a band called Hagfish. Really? That was like a punk <laughs> punk band called Hagfish. <laughs> What'd you think of them? I, I've never listened to them. I should. It's going to come up on their Google alerts. They're going to be like, oh man, it's about the fish again. Yeah. The band Hagfish emerged in 1991 broke up in 2001 and had an energetic neo-punk style descended from the Descendants. Now, one of their most revered studio albums is called Rocks Your Lame Ass. And according to music journalist Trixie Delight, their name itself means nothing to the band personally. It was simply chosen randomly from a dictionary. Here's what they sound like. P.S. They wore suits and had sideburns and opened for the Reverend Horton Heat and made a few other albums. So hagfish kind of made it big. But how big can hagfish make it? You know, we're already seeing like some of these hagfish are four to six feet long. Ooh. Others are absolutely tiny, like, you know, 10 centimeters. I'm sorry I keep oh. jumping between the two <laughs> systems. but and, yeah. you, and we just don't know how old they get. No. Because nothing calcifies. There's nothing to... Oh, there's yeah. such a mystery. And oh. so that's one of those things that a lot of fish are indeterminate growers, right? Mm -hmm. Like they technically have the potential to grow forever, right? But Ooh. in the deep sea, especially with such a strong defense mechanism like the slime that they have you know yeah they could they could live decades they could live over 100 years who knows wow, they're such quiet badasses yeah that's what i love about them is yeah. they're just like oh i'm sorry did you want to mess with me because it's just like <laughs> damn hagfish um can yeah. i ask you patreon questions yes for okay. sure oh my gosh uh i got a lot of questions from listeners that's good Okay, so before we get to Patreon questions, a few words from sponsors of the show. They make it possible for me to give a donation each week to a charity of the ologist choosing. And this week, Tim asked that it go to his Canadian woodsy science home away from home, the Wildlife Research Station. And since its inception in 1944, the Wildlife Research Station has been providing access and logistical support for university and government researchers. It's situated on Lake Saskatchewan in the Algonquin Provincial Park and operates as a non-for-profit organization. It's been instrumental in these really uniquely long-running research projects on wildlife from flies to small mammals and turtles and birds and more. So a link to that nonprofit will be in the show notes and up at aliward.com slash ologies slash hagfishology. Okay, some things I like. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, 
therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. 
And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning Ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay, we're back. Now, the first question was also asked by patron Shea Goddard. Sydney Brown wants to know, where did hagfish get their name and what's the biggest hagfish ever found? Ooh, that's a good name or a good question. Sorry. In terms of the, the, the word hagfish, I'm not sure. But obviously, I, you know, if I were to take a more of a random guess at it, it has something to do with their looks, right? Yeah. You oh. know, I'm just going to go ahead and guess. So side note. Patron Carla Kennedy asked, are we sure they were supposed to be named hag and not gagfish? Typos happen. Shrug emoji. Wow. Wow. Carla, where is the respect for a slimy, jawless sausage with a tiny dick mustache? And I'm sorry, I made everyone wait this far to hear the etymology of hagfish, but okay. So the term was first recorded in 1611, and it just comes from their face because they thought they were not cute. Sometimes the most obvious answer is insultingly the right one. But, but, though hag means technically now a repulsive old woman, according to the dictionary, that word is derived from the word for witch, which, given the magic spell it can cast in the form of a phlegm net, isn't so off base. And the reason why that word meant witch that became the word hag is because it came from a term for a hedge rider, as in a supernatural woman who rode the hedges between the safe normal village and then the wild outer lands. So, hagfish, spellbinding, rule-breaking, living in the darkness and making alchemy of a whale carcass, turning it into magic nutrient poo. Now, on the topic of kalology and how women are judged by toxic beauty standards, a few people, including Amber and Jonathan Mead, as well as Kelsey Libu, Francina Martinez, Megan Metcalf, Jessica Beard, Amanda Blackburn, Hannah Lease, Kimberly Faharo, Katie Kelly Hankin, Dominica Deck, and Trent Hopp asked this next one. Amber and Jonathan Mead want to know, are there any medical or cosmetic uses for hagfish slime? I think there's definitely an interest in the cosmetic field uh, as well as in the medical field um, in the sense that it can maybe be used as a biological filter, right? That, you know, if it blocks the flow of water and traps water, you can maybe use it as an actual filter material. Um, There's interest in using it as a food product as well as like an egg replacement i've seen hagfish slime itself turn up in recipes really yeah yeah so i think that there's people for a long time have been looking to use it for different things Mm -hmm. i think 
partially what's limited it is the availability of hagfish. Like they're just <laughs> not super common on land. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, as well that it's difficult to store the slime, right? So oh. the way that the hagfish stores it inside of their glands is not really well understood. We under, we know the chemicals that are there. We know sort of the environmental conditions is inside the gland, but how they function is not really well known. And we've had a hard time replicating it. So I think that's another one of the challenges to mainstream use of hagfish material mm -hmm. is that you need to be able to maintain its really charismatic properties over time. You're one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. Right. And we see that there it's reactivity to seawater. Um, it, it's the rate at which it responds and everything changes as we store it. Oh, so yeah. What happens if you have a mason jar full of hagfish lime? It eventually, if it's in water, it will collapse. The network does collapse down mm -hmm. and it, it essentially will somewhat dissolve away. The component is dissolvable, mm -hmm. but we've never followed it over really long periods, like days or weeks. Mm -hmm. um, typically for most of our work, we're interested in the really, really short time scale stuff. If we were to use hagfish slime for medical purposes or cosmetic or anything, we need to either figure out how to replicate it or how to store it in really meaningful ways. I feel like if you had a sheet mask that was just hagfish slime, <laughs> that would be Hydrating as hell. Can you imagine just just get a hagfish to lay on your face? Just like, I mean, that's essentially what a sheet mask is. Um, Colin Elijah wants to know, where do they fall in the food chain? Um, you know, do other animals want to even eat something that slimy? But yeah, but if, you, yeah. if you're a, a mammal, a sea mammal, you can chomp on it. Yeah. But where do they fall in the food chain? Yeah, I would say... Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that they form the bottom of the food chain. Okay. But I wouldn't say that they're necessarily the top either. Okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of really active predators, even in the deep. Like there's big active shark species. There's big fish species uh, that would probably be the dominant predator down there. But I think that because they have such a strong defense mechanism, which could also be viewed as sort of a competitive thing. So as they're feeding at a carcass, they do release bits of slime, mm -hmm. right? And that's sort of been one, one of my ideas too, is whether or not they actually use it to compete around a carcass, right? So hagfish can all deal with the slime, but nothing else can, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in terms of where they fall, I, like they are preyed upon, but they're also a predator. So I think they're going to be somewhere in the middle in terms of the you know the zones of uh, of animals out there Ooh, i love that they're like hagfish party only okay so chris brewer asked this next one but so did jack amanda niren lonnie bauer sonia karpelovich bonnie joyce amelia blakeman kitty halverson von svedson zoe jane Haley everson erica pohanka danny q and shalina they all asked some form of this hungry question Chris Brewer wants to know, will hagfish sushi ever trend? Ooh, uh, well, hagfish are eaten in Korea uh, and probably elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Um, they're barbecued, typically. Okay. Yeah. Have yeah. you ever eaten it? I have never eaten it. I 
think the more time you spend with stuff, the more you sense its distinct smell and the more <laughs> that it would probably taste like they smell. Okay. <laughs> um, Eric Bahanka wants to know, have you ever tried eating their slime? No, but I, I know people have and that it is a part of recipes egg replacement but again i don't think the slime would taste like much it probably tastes like seawater seawater does yeah. it do the same thing in fresh water uh less vigorously really yeah so what is it about the salinity that activates those threads well that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out like whether it's active exchanges that go on um with ions associated with the or the threads whether it's a temperature related thing that the slime tends to set up better in cold water than warm water. Mm -hmm. um, so it, like, it's a fairly, it's a fairly complex problem, I yeah. guess. So we've been going at it from a lot of different angles and uh, you know, we have a fairly good idea of the parameters that result in good slime formation, but the actual chemical basis for it all is still out there. Which is so exciting. Is it mm -hmm. exciting to be at the forefront of this research? It's like, super interesting. That's like, what we, everything we do day to day, for the most part, has never been done. So that gets me excited. Okay, heads up. Spoiler alert. This next question may deal with non-Newtonian fluids. So I thought I'd drop a def here now. And I'm going to read this part right off of Wikipedia because I didn't want to get it wrong. But a non-Newtonian fluid is a fluid that does not follow Newton's law of viscosity. It says, in non-Newtonian fluids, viscosity can change when under force to be either more liquid or it can be more solid. So ketchup, for example, becomes runnier when it's shaken. Thus, ketchup is a non-Newtonian fluid. I just learned that right now. It also says custard, honey, toothpaste, paint, Blood and shampoo are all non-Newtonian fluids. It also sounds like just a delicious smoothie. Just toss them all in a blender. Sarah wants to know, is hagfish slime a solid or a liquid? Is it a non-Newtonian fluid? It is a non-Newtonian fluid. Really? Um, so, yeah, hagfish slime is composed. It does have solid components to it, mm -hmm. but... Because it essentially, we call it viscous entrapment. So hagfish slime doesn't bind to water at all, right? It essentially creates channels that are really narrow that work on the surface tension of water to trap it and slow its flow, right? So it essentially slows water flow to a point that it creates the slime. Mm -hmm. But if you hold that slime out of water, all that water will drip out eventually. Wow. And you'll be left with nothing but a bit of and fiber. Oh my gosh. So it's kind of like a really good net for water. Exactly. Right. Wow. Which is sort of why earlier I was saying it'd be interesting to apply it to, you know, something like an oil spill and mm -hmm. see how it, how it worked at mopping up the water with the oil component in it. Oh my gosh, that's so fascinating. Um, Lara Taffer wants to know, do hagfish have any close relatives to any land animals? Land animals? I don't think so. Their closest relative that's still living is the lamprey, right? So, oh, okay. Yeah, so they're, they're sort of grouped together with hagfish because they're a jawless creature. They have, you know, primitive eel-like body. But uh, I think there's now, you know, the jury's out about whether or not hagfish actually started out much more vertebrate-like and then lost those vertebrate-like features. Wow. 
right? So that what we're seeing is essentially something that was more complex that actually somewhat simplified in time. Mm -hmm. So they may have just gone on back. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Um, let's see. Suki Holly wants to know, since hagfishes are creatures of the deep, do they get the bends when scientists bring them up to the lab to study? It's a super good question. Uh, so a lot of hagfish, or sorry, a lot of fish have what's called an air bladder, mm -hmm. which uh, actually fills with air to provide buoyancy for them. Mm -hmm. So they can fill it and empty it to adjust how you know where they are in the water column. Mm -hmm. Hagfish don't have an air bladder, so when we bring them up, they're actually totally fine, oh. right? So a lot of fish, yeah, it's a, it's a good question because most fish that you would bring up from that depth are dead by the time they hit the surface mm -hmm. because their swim bladder actually ruptures and, and like causes severe damage to the fish itself. Yeah. Hagfish don't have that problem, which is one of the reasons we can even study them. Right, because we'd have a really hard time bringing them up. Hagfish have seemingly no problem coming to uh, you know ambient pressure at the surface. They're su such slimy badasses. Yeah, I'm voting for hagfish for president. Is that weird? <laughs> I'm like so in awe of them. I feel like hagfish is gonna absolutely save the world. Um, okay, I'm gonna ask one more question from a patron and then we'll wrap up. Travis DeMello wants to know, what are their social lives like? Do they relate to one another and where do they sleep? Uh, I think that's another great question. So uh, I think hagfish have a very vibrant social life. I got lots of friends. I think that they we see them living in burrows together. We don't know about their relationship to each other, but they seem to like to pack together. They do like to be together in congregations. Um, you know, where you find one hagfish, you find more, right? <laughs> um, so whether or not that has to do with the environment being really conducive to hagfish or whether or not they actually seek out a social group, we don't know. We're actually working on uh, at least filming them in captivity to better understand how they interact with each other, mm -hmm. you know, over the days and weeks of, you know, circling around these tanks and with very limited hiding spots, right? We provide them with habitat to hide in, but we're interested in how they maybe compete for that habitat. Like, are there dominant hagfish and subordinate hagfish, or are they sort of devoid of that altogether, right? Which is also a possibility that, you know, the whole competition that we see in a lot of other animals may be such an energy waster for a hagfish that they just don't do it. Yeah. Just maybe they don't care. Yeah, maybe hagfish are friendly. <laughs> uh, do you, do there, is there a need for more hagfishologists? I, I think there's a need for a lot more people to study what's happening in the oceans. Yeah. I think it's one of the, you know, in many ways that Antarctica and space are these like crazy frontiers, right? I think the deep ocean is one of the last unexplored frontiers on the planet. Um, almost, you know, a lot of these missions that have gone down uh, to video and find new species, almost every time they deploy these ROVs or deep sea submersibles, they find new species. I know that we get very excited when undergraduates come into the lab and we get to introduce them to hagfish <laughs> and, you know, spread the wonder for sure. But I think that it, it is one of those things that most biologists that ever come across them are, are permanently 
interested, right? <laughs> they never lose their interest. And like we've seen this with people that are now in their 90s that love talking hagfish <laughs> because they maybe worked with them for one year, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. But it was one of the most interesting things they ever did. You just get caught in a slimy web of yeah. <laughs> love for hagfish. Yeah. All the, all the puns. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, is there anything, I always ask this at the very end, is there something about your job that sucks? Something that frustrates you? What's the worst part about your job or hagfish? Oh, I, I think uh, nothing wrong with the hagfish, but I think in terms <laughs> of science in general, uh, you, there's a lot of failure, right? Like when you're doing projects, you're doing experiments, um, in, in science, you never know what's right. You only ever find out what's likely wrong. Right. <laughs> That's, so I think that it would be the most frustrating thing is that you have to, you know, have pretty thick skin in a way, I guess, to, to deal with, you know, especially going up against questions or developing uh, experiments and apparatus that have maybe never been used or designed before, right? Like there's no Hagfish 101 book that we can really turn to to figure some stuff out, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's a, a good body of literature on hagfish. We do have what we consider the hagfish Bible, right? Really? Yeah. What is it? It's called the biology of hagfish. And there's been, I think, three iterations of it now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you have like a copy in your glove compartment, one at home. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I got one here for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> pocket guide to hagfish. Yeah. I texted Tim later and asked, what was the hagfish Bible? And he said, there are two. There's the biology of hagfish and hagfish biology. I hope the authors are friends. I, I'd say that's it, but I think that's part of the fun too. Mm -hmm. I'd say the, the, the primary frustration is also the primary driver. Yeah, like <laughs> what is your favorite thing about your job? What's your favorite thing about hagfish or your job or what you do? I think that's, it's discovery. I think it's like you were saying earlier, it's being on the forefront of something. Mm -hmm. It's being like literally looking into the abyss, like how did natural selection act upon this? Um, what does this mean in terms of how hagfish relate to each other? How did they relate to vertebrates and other fish? And I think that that's something that just keeps us end endlessly intrigued because you know, there's more unanswered questions and answered questions. And I think that's good for any scientific field, right? right? Like you want to think you have a good idea of what's going on, but the more you know, the more you know, you don't know. Right. And I think that's a good problem that scientists have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that keeps you going a lot. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Oh, great. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. That's I'm great. just so charmed by hagfish. It's awesome. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> so remember to ask smart people, real stupid gross questions because how else in the world would you discover that hagfishes are handsome drifters and 17th century witches who live in a timeshare with Bigfoot and the Holy Grail and they help impotent men have long-awaited children and they deserve our respect. Some of those might not be true, but they are an inspiration for military defense. They could change the way we use fibers. They're pretty chill. And yes, they deserve our respect. Now, Tim Weingart is not on social media. God bless this Canadian hagfishologist. But you can Google the Douglas Fudge Lab at Chapman University to learn more about what they're researching. So many great resources. We are ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. And more links are in the show notes and they're up at allieward.com slash ologies 
slash hagfishology. Um, you can get merch through that site or through ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch for managing all that. Thank you, Hannah Lippo and Aaron Talbert for adminning the wonderful Facebook group. To interns Harry Kim and Caleb Patton, to Jarrett Sleeper of Mind Jam Media for assistant editing, and of course, to the mysterious slime witch, Stephen Ray Morris, who edits all the pieces together and also hosts the Kitty Podcast, the Percast, and the dino-centric one, See Jurassic Right. And the theme song was written by Nick Thorburn of the band Islands. He also did the theme song for Serial. Fun trivia. Also, before the secret, I want to say a quick belated happy birthday to my dear friend Micah. Also, happy birthday to Stephen Ray Morris, whose birthday is on Wednesday of this week. Happy birthday to Catherine Burns, who has a birthday this week. Also, to my niece Olivia. Happy birthday to boob haver, bra buyer, good friend Colleen, whose birthday is this week. So many April birthdays. I love you all. Um, If you stick around until the end of the episode, you know I tell you a secret. And this one, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty topical. The reason that I took the lab tour and you didn't hear it is because there is one button that I accidentally pressed on my Zoom and it switched over the mics so that the onboard mics weren't picking anything up. So it was just 32 minutes of static. Boom. I'm sorry. Bummer. Great episode anyway. Another secret is that I had a dream that I had a live stream and no one showed up to watch it. And I was wearing like dirty grease spotted leggings that were made by Ferrari. And I was like, oh, these are my good leggings. I really messed these up. Anyway, no one watched my live stream. And I thought, Ward, what are you doing? Nobody wants this stuff. Anyway, I woke up and was like, well, at least Ferrari doesn't make leggings. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is... I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say... Hang it in there. Because... If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.